The American Petroleum Institute, driving safety, environmental protection, and sustainability across the natural gas and oil industry through world-class standards and safety programs. Since its formation as a standard-setting organization in 1919, API has developed more than 800 standards to enhance industry operations worldwide. Find out more at api.org. Welcome to the Oil & Gas DEI Podcast, where we explore the energy industry through the lens of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Listen to top leaders from around the world share their experience and insights for building a more inclusive and diverse workforce. Now, here's your host, Kim Ali. Welcome back, everyone, to the DEI and Energy Podcast. I'm your host, Kim Ali, DEI consultant, speaker, and travel addict. And today we have the esteemed Regina Bynote Jones, who is the Chief Legal Officer from Baker Hughes. So before we begin, Regina, I have a confession, okay? <laughs> I have been following you for over a year now on LinkedIn, and I'm just enamored by you and everything that you've been able to achieve, not just at Baker Hughes, but at other companies as well. And on top of that, I have an affinity for women, especially women of color who are bold and courageous enough to take the leap of faith and live overseas. And listeners, if you don't know, Regina has lived in Paris and Kuala Lumpur, which is in Malaysia. And so because of that, I just have so many questions for you, and I'm sure the listeners do too. So without further delay, Regina, please introduce yourself and just share your journey of how you ended up at Baker Hughes. So thank you, Kim. First of all, thank you for the positive comments as well. And I hope that over the last year, if you've been following me, hopefully I haven't said anything to disappoint you. And more importantly, I will. That's a heavy bar. So I'll continue to try to live up to your expectations just in being a hopefully beacon of light and positive energy for women of color and quite frankly, for your entire audience. So thank you for that. My journey is one that could probably take up the whole podcast, but I'll try to be brief, if you will. I was born in Memphis, Tennessee. I am a lawyer, obviously, in a global legal role for Baker Hughes. And between Memphis, Tennessee and where I sit today in Houston, a lot has happened. I've always wanted to be a lawyer. And when I was a little girl, I used to watch those TV shows, Nancy Drew, Hardy Boys, play the game of Clue. And it was just a world I wanted to be in. And it was amazing to me when I got to see that we now have our first African-American Supreme Court justice. And so just thinking about all of that journey, I ended up not being the first Supreme Court justice, which is what I always wanted to be. I had to pivot a bit because life takes you in directions that sometimes you don't plan for. But with that said, I grew up in Memphis. We moved across the United States, though, because my dad worked with a restaurant across different regions. And so as a child, I became very accustomed to frequent movement. Just through my elementary and high school years, I probably went to six or seven different schools. So I'm used to not being always in the same place. And that ended up being a great 
opportunity for me to begin to practice those skills as through life, I've also gone on different journeys. So leaving Memphis, we moved across the U.S. and then I landed in Houston in about the eighth grade and went to a local university in Texas, Sam Houston State University, started working shortly after. But while I went to school, although I wanted to be a lawyer, my dad told me that I should focus on technology because he said technology and IT is where everything's going to be. And so even though you want to be a lawyer, don't major in history. So I changed my major because I was majoring in criminal justice, actually. And I changed it to technology, which surprisingly is one of the times I followed my dad's advice. And at the time, they didn't have computer science. Well, they had computer science degrees, but not the management information systems and the broader scale of technology degrees. So I stuck to a general business and a minor in computer science because I wasn't good in math. So with that said, when I was an intern, I interned in IT throughout all of my college career with a program called Inroads, which I'm a huge fan. So shout out to Inroads. It's focused on making sure opportunities are provided for individuals of color and minorities and Indians when actually moving into their longer term careers, if you will. So you work as a summer intern each year. So I did that in IT. And when I graduated, I worked in IT for 10 years before moving to legal profession. I went to law school at night, which was a journey. I'd work eight to five and then go to law school six to 10. And it took me four years for that journey. But it was, again, something I'd always wanted to do. So Looking back where I am today, I worked in IT for 10 years, and then I made a pivot at a pivotal time in my career to move to the legal profession. And so as I look back, now my journey has kind of gone all over the place. Wow, that is amazing. So two things. One, you are still young enough. Maybe you can be the second Black female Supreme Court justice. And two, I'm curious, what did your father do for a living? Because how did he predict that technology would be the way of the future? I'm just curious. Yeah, so it's funny. My dad was a regional manager with a restaurant that I love, but I'm not sure that they're still in business. It was called Steak and Ale at the time. And as part of his career with Steak and Ale, because he was a regional manager, he moved around to the different regions in the United States that he worked in. On the technology side, my dad just loved technology in the background. He was an IT geek. I will never forget one day he called me and he was super excited because he had bought a one gigabyte hard drive. So think about in the context of the day, one gigabyte hard drive for a thousand dollars. What? We were like, when you think about it today, like you could buy a terabyte for $18. And so, you know, he just loved technology. So he told me, I really think there's something here. You just need to do this. He had a computer before people had computers and I listened. So I began to love technology too. Even to this day, I love IT and innovation and just everything that life has benefited from because of just innovative technology offerings. Wow. Now, would you be where you are today if it were not for your father's guidance? No, I wouldn't. Because I think a couple things. One, if we hadn't moved around a lot as a child and I had just been grounded to 
I'm used to being with the same people in the same place. I'd have never been open to moving abroad in the first place. So there was a mindset that came with having to, as a child, engage with different people and meet new friends every single, it was frustrating, but I got to the point to where I realized that I'm not going to have friends if I don't learn to talk to people that I don't know and deal with rejection and adapt my style and my culture. And so as a result, just I've had many more rich experience. So that was the first thing. And then the second thing is just recognizing that he was open to so many different things, because like you talked about or like you asked about, he was in the restaurant field and he was enthusiastic about new technology and innovation. And so he kind of pushed me into that direction and I'm only benefited because of it. Well, I love how you mentioned, you know, that exposure. Growing up, my parents traveled a lot as well, just within the Caribbean and Central America. But just that taste, you know, I was bitten by the travel bug. And when I became old enough to travel on my own and eventually ended up living overseas for five years. So I love how you phrase that. All right. So thank you for sharing your journey. So I'm sure the listeners are curious to know, being in the legal field, how do you see the role of law and policy in terms of promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion within Baker Hughes? So that's a really interesting question, particularly in this moment, because it's a very debated and discussed topic given the recent Supreme Court ruling that affected Harvard and the University of North Carolina, but now all university applicants. And I think it's important, and this is just a fundamental of law and policy around the globe, is it sets the standard and it sets the framework that you have to operate within. Sometimes it's popular, sometimes it's not but it always governs. So what we have to do is stick to our values, all right? Because law and policy is a consideration and it helps to shape, but at the end of the day, our core values of Baker Hughes are lead, grow, collaborate. And as part of those three in particular that I'll focus on, in order to lead and excuse me, I left out one, the the most important one I'm going to get to. But in order to lead, grow and collaborate, you have to care. And that's our fourth value, which is care. And so when you think about diversity, equity and inclusion, first of all, you can't grow if you don't have innovative thinkers and thought leaders and people of diverse cultures and backgrounds as part of your team. Second of all, you can't lead if you're excluding others from the equation. That all just is now a fundamental requirement for diversity. And if you really care about your employees and if you really care about the communities that you operate in, that's just going to be the way you are built as a company. So when law and policy comes in and starts now requiring that you pivot in certain places, you do that. And those are the laws of all of the jurisdictions that you're in. We're in 120 countries. The United States is one of those. Are we going to respect the laws of the United States? You better believe it. But at the same time, we're going to stay true to our values. And so we adapt as we need to. We adjust as we need to. And finally, we listen to our employees to understand what's important to them 
And are we as a company doing the right thing as it relates to how we want to operate and how we want to be seen? We're one global citizenship in Baker Hughes, but we will always do what's right and we will always do it in compliance within those boundaries that are set. I love that you say that because a lot of organizations, when it comes to DEI, just focus on training, right? But I preach that you have to embed DEI within your organization. That means it's in your core values. That means it's in policies, right? And so, regardless, like you say, you want to, you know, not break the law, but regardless of what's happening externally, the organization is not impacted because you live and breathe DEI. So, thank you for highlighting that. All right. So let's move on to the next question. So as a chief legal officer, how do you ensure, you just talked about how Baker Hughes is in 120 countries, right? But how do you ensure that the company's DEI values are upheld across different cultures? So it's funny because the first thing I'm thinking about is as chief legal officer, how do I ensure anything? <laughs> um, and I think a part of it, a really important part of it is understanding and helping to engage and drive a culture of integrity, first of all. Okay. Because if we have integrity in our words, our actions are going to show up and actually demonstrate that on its own, first of all. So the tone at the top is fundamentally important. I'm not going to come in and if I have to tell people the law requires you us to have equal treatment and affirmative action or if I have to mandate that. I'm not in the right place, okay? Within Baker Hughes and within most companies, it starts from what is the messaging and what are the expectations of the leaders when you're talking about such an important topic to your employees and how are you going to show up? So first is you ensure that you have clarity of expectations and communications around what does it actually mean? All right. Secondly, is you have accountability where you can actually see that people are not just being asked to work a certain way or behave a certain way, but they're also being rewarded and incentivized when you do what you should do in order to move the company forward. So like I talked about the importance of innovation, the importance of growth, the importance of leadership, those are fundamental components and elements of all of those things. So it's really about making sure that when I'm at the table, I'm sending the right leadership messaging. When I'm engaging with employees, I'm doing it in a way that I'm authentic and I, they genuinely can see that me as a leader and others around me mean it when we say diversity, equity, and inclusion matter. So it's more about not what you mandate, but how you behave and engage and whether your actions are consistent with your words. Mm, okay. And if you're able to disclose, great. If not, I understand. But you mentioned rewards and incentivizing employees. Can you talk a little bit more about that and what that looks like? So it depends. And we have an amazing diversity, equity, and inclusion leader, Nicole Durham. And Nicole has worked with all of the executive leadership team to help make sure we build out diversity, equity, and inclusion action plans. Mm -hmm. So what that means is I have to sit down with my legal leadership team and I say, and I look at the data and I look at what our metrics are around diversity and how we want to show up. So if I see from the data that, oh, our female population is not balance. The numbers are off, if you will, or our cultural diversity is off. Or if I see that 
it doesn't appear that our compensation is consistent across the different parts of the organization or across the genders. So a lot of it is driven by, hey, what is the data telling me? Okay. And then I have to look at that in the context now of where do we want to change the numbers or where do we need to address issues or gaps? And then we build out a plan for legal. That then rolls up into now everyone has clarity as to what specific actions you need to take in your organization in order to ultimately get to the broader objectives of Baker Hughes. And then based on that, I measured on whether or not I achieve my business objectives. And part of my business objectives include how I show up around diversity, equity, and inclusion. So it's in your performance factors, first of all. Now, am I inclusive in how I engage with my team? Does my team see my behaviors? Does my CEO see consistency? Is there integrity in my plan? Does my data align with what I'm saying? And so it's as part of our broader performance management. And then what I would also say is the board. And on our board of directors, we have our human capital and compensation committee, where they're also looking at on a regular basis, how are you doing Baker Hughes when it comes to not just your corporate values, but also diversity, equity, and inclusion in your workforce and in the specific areas where we need to focus. So it changes depending on our circumstances, depending on our workforce, depending on our talent needs for the future but we're measured on the success of all of those things. And ultimately you're rewarded if you achieve your broader goals across the organization of which DEI is one of them. Mm, and so you mentioned it's attached to performance reviews. So that could mean a salary increase perhaps, maybe? Our compensation structure is not set up to where it's as specific as if you have this many or this percentage of class or of gender, et cetera, that you get this amount of money. So we're not that specific in how we measure and reward. It's broader because it's part of a bigger picture, not just individual, if X, then Y. It's part of the broader equation in looking at your performance as an individual. Okay. And thank you for sharing. The reason why I'm asking, because I work with companies and we try to come up with creative ways to incentivize, you know, so for example, managers, a lot of managers don't want to do DEI or inclusive leadership training, right? And so uh-huh. we look at some ways, okay, well, how can we entice people to come on board? And a lot of times, well, unfortunately, money is an incentive. And so I was just curious to know what that looked like. Yeah, I think it also depends because you have to understand that we're in 120 countries. Mm -hmm. And so what the answer in one jurisdiction may be very different than another. The answer with one part of the population may be very different with another. Everyone isn't motivated based on compensation as well. Some people want to see more diversity. If I'm in Saudi, it is a very different conversation on DE&I than if I'm in Houston or Texas or the United States. So us being able to have the ability to understand that we have to be agile and we have to be very thoughtful and engaging with our employees on what does diversity mean for them. Yes. If I'm in Africa, it's probably not I want this many Black people. It's Now, how do I adapt my strategy for what the individual population 
cares about and what motivates them to ensure that not only is it diverse in that jurisdiction or geography, but also that there's equity and there's also inclusiveness, not just in country, but across all of Baker Hughes. So it's a complicated equation when you start tailoring incentives and rewards and performance. It's about you have to look at all of those factors. It is. And I can attest because I know when I lived in Qatar, culture and religion was the driving force behind DEI mm-hmm. initiatives. Whereas here in the state, it may be more race and gender based, right? And so you're right. DEI is subjective and you have to look at what it means for each organization and the region or country that they're in. So thank you for sharing that. All right. So speaking of initiatives, could you discuss any programs at Baker Hughes that demonstrate the company's commitment to DEI and women in leadership? So one program at Baker Hughes that I'm super proud of is we have our employee resource groups. And they're amazing because they're, first of all, driven by our employee population. Okay, so we have an enabled employee research group, which is employees that have disabilities, if you will. And it could be all time. It's not just disabilities that you see. It could be anything where you show up and you have something special or different that you bring that you attribute to now a need to be enabled in one way or another across the organization. We have a veterans ERG. We have a black employees network. We have a women's ERG where I am the executive sponsor for the women's ERG. And through all of those, there's two really important benefits to both the employee and to Baker Hughes. One is it's a voice to the people who actually relate and are a part of that particular group. So if I'm a woman, I identify as a woman, I'm a part of the women's ERG, but it's not just for women. Anyone who wants to be an ally with that ERG or understand, I'm also a member of the Asian Employee Network. I want to understand their culture. What are their challenges? I think they're the most fun when it comes to what they do because they have such fun things. My only challenge is they're normally like at 2 a.m. in the morning, Houston. So being able to really learn and understand and engage in cultures with people who really are experiencing some of the challenges that we're trying to address and being able to have listening sessions and talk about the issues with that particular group is really important. The ERGs is something that I just love, and it's amazing to see the energy that they bring across all of Baker Hughes. The second thing that I think is important, which is what I already mentioned, which is the action plans, because it puts momentum and accountability around actually doing something versus just saying something from a leadership perspective. So when we show up and we say we want to be a diverse company, we want to ensure there's equity and we want to ensure there's inclusion. Like I said, it's going to mean different things to different people. It's going to need to be implemented different ways, depending on where you are and what the challenges are of that environment. And all of those things come together to really create what hopefully will be a successful journey that we will all feel a part of together. Within the legal department, I also have a diversity, a DEI council. And it's made up of maybe 30 or so legal professionals, and they're broken into five different subgroups where they tackle specific issues and challenges. One of them is wellness, because that's a part of diversity, equity, and inclusion, too, which is 
when you show up, you need to not just be comfortable being your whole self, but you need to feel safe. You need to feel like you can have balance to the extent you can. You need to feel like you're getting the emotional support that you need in the office, et cetera, particularly with some of the things we're dealing with recently. So again, that was something specific to legal that we wanted to do because of our mix and some of the challenges we have. And it's worked out wonderfully. You know, those are three of the things that I think of at this moment that I'm really proud of and also personally benefit from, not just as a leader in the company, but also where I have the ability to talk to others and engage with others, both as a champion for them and also as a beneficiary. Wow. I love it. I love it. You know, my favorite initiative is the wellness, (laughs) obviously, because nursing is my background, but not just that, but people don't understand the connection between DE&I and wellness. People from disadvantaged communities are at higher risk of stress at work because of the environment. And when you are stressed out, it impacts your focus. It impacts your well-being. Sick calls go up. Leave of absences go up when you have unhealthy employees. So I would love to learn more about that maybe offline (laughs) if you're open to it. But thank you for sharing and thank you for recognizing that it is significant to the DNI journey. All right. So looking ahead, what do you see as the most pressing legal issue and DNI issues facing the oil and gas industry? So I'll start from the basics. I think just as an industry, it's always been a challenge for us. And I say that because we're industry in the first place. You know, we're we're heavy in engineers. We have a huge male population. We do work in sometimes dangerous places as well as in geographies that may not always be safe. We're working out in the field in remote locations. So it's just hard to have the balance and get people to want to work in those environments in the first place. And then secondly, to make sure that we're doing the right thing so they're supported and they have the tools they need and they're safe in those environments also. So just the challenge of making sure we get it right makes it even more difficult in our industry. Secondly is we have to make sure that In the local jurisdictions, and I can't emphasize this enough with the comments that we talked about with the Supreme Court decision, every country is different. And having the ability to have the adaptability in places you need to, but the empathy in places you need to. As an American, certain places, I can't come in now talking about what this country needs to do because they have different values than we do. And just because we believe differently doesn't mean that in their local culture, they're not going to have specific practices and customs that are unique to them that they also value. So showing up with empathy is also part of the challenge. And it doesn't really sound like it's a legal answer. But quite frankly, if you really want to make progress, you have to start with that. Because if you come in with a rule-based lawyer approach where I'm going to tell you the way it needs to be done, it's not going to work. So I would say one of the biggest challenges really is having that tailored approach across the jurisdictions that you're in, recognizing that in spite of even the geographies, you also have a multicultural workforce. So as an American, I've worked in France, I've worked in Malaysia, and when I show up there, I want to feel included too. 
And what inclusion looks like there, it's not just about how do Malaysians feel included in the U.S., how do Americans feel included in Malaysia? And so there's so many dynamics when you're a global company and a multi-country, multicultural workforce. It just introduces a lot. So it's about having that empathy and understanding and doing the right things. But that's not just from a legal standpoint, it's from an ethical and a moral and a principle standpoint as well. Yeah. And a human standpoint, just being human. Exactly. Yeah. I want to go back to something that you said. You talked about recruitment and safety. I know the work needs to get done, right? But what are some strategies that Baker Hughes is using in order to recruit and retain workers? Mm-hmm. That's a loaded question (laughs) because I'll start with women. And I say that because that's an obvious place that we have to focus in our industry, which is having gender balance. Okay. Before some of the reasons I talked about. And sometimes the answer there even starts very simply. If you're working in a remote location, the more we can be intentional about making sure there's not just one woman Mm. at that remote location so that she has someone else she can relate to and engage with. And you're also going to feel safer if it's not just you as well. Secondly, making sure that employees feel accountable. If they see something, say something. And that always applies to safety. I mean, you can stop the job if you see an unsafe incident. It also applies to our cultural dynamics as well and making sure individuals feel safe. And so we want all of our employee population to feel accountable for now supporting each other, whether you're of the same gender or not. A male employee should feel just as comfortable speaking up on behalf of a female employee or vice versa as anyone else. That's kind of driving the right cultural behaviors across the board. And then it comes to even simple things like making sure you have the right uniforms and that where people feel comfortable and safe. And I'll use an example, which is we have coveralls that we wear in our industry when you're working remotely or when you're working on a client job. Those coveralls are similar to if you have kids like a onesie where it's one, you zip it from the top to the bottom. So, okay, I'm working in the field and I have coveralls and I've got to use the restroom outside. So I've got to take off my onesie completely if I'm a female to be able to use the restroom. So recognizing the challenges that come with basic things is also another factor. So we redesigned our coveralls, as many in the industry have done, to ensure that we're being sensitive to just the differences between men and women. Because if I'm a woman and I've got to get undressed, 100% to go use the restroom, I'm not going to want to work in a remote environment, which means I'm not going to want to work for Baker Hughes. So making sure people have the right tools and resources they need cannot be underscored as being important. And then it gets to now looking across at the population, the employee population, and just asking them what do they need and listening and being intentional when you're recruiting, that you're recruiting in the right places. I just attended a workshop that was one of the most powerful workshops that I have attended in a long time. And it was with... What's the name of the workshop? Do you mind sharing? It was a roundtable panel discussion that was at a seminar that I had attended. So I'm not going to call it a workshop. It was more so at a seminar. And as part of that seminar, it included a gentleman who was blind. 
All right. And it was talking about disabilities. And he was talking about some of the challenges that he was had. He was in such a cool job as well because he was working on advising now on how you use technology in applications where you're dealing with blind people and how you innovate now to have innovative products for the blind and how you also make sure that blind employees are applying, I mean, blind people are applying for jobs at your company. And it was really compelling for me because I've been working in this industry for 30 years and no one blind has ever applied for a job or I've never interviewed anyone that was blind. So I was asking myself, okay, well, why not? What is it that I'm not doing to where someone who has sight or visibility challenges because you don't have to be 100% blind? What am I not doing such that I'm not recruiting an important part of the population? So it is about having intentionality as well to recruit broadly enough so that we don't have people standing behind the I can't find anyone. Shame on me if I stand up and say, well, I can't find any blind people. There aren't any good blind people or with visible impairment challenges. No, I need to figure out what do I need to do to get in the right forums? Do I have my job descriptions in Braille? Do I have them such that you can listen to the audio of what's required when you click on it? So it's being open, if you will, to now some of the things that can be done to recruit populations and recruit individuals who really bring diversity to your table and recognizing that diversity is a real thing and you've got to understand what it means to you. Mm. You know, it's ironic that you bring up uh, disability because I'm starting to get feedback on the podcast and already I've received two private messages. One was hearing impaired and I believe the other one had dyslexia, right? And the feedback from them is that they did not feel welcomed in the oil and gas industry. They held positions and unfortunately they did not remain in those positions long because of the environment. And Mm -hmm. that is often a population that we tend to miss, right, when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so I'm glad you're sharing this because it just keeps it top of mind for me to bring more awareness to it as well. Right. And, you know, as an industry, it can be very dangerous, some of the work that we do, which means we just have to lean into it more because we want people to feel safe. And so we don't want to show up and not have the accommodations that are needed in order for them to be safe either. So it's an end-to-end thought process to make sure you don't miss something all because you're trying to do the right thing in spirit, but then you get someone and they show up and now they don't have the tools and resources to really be successful. So that's where you can't have diversity without inclusion. You can't have inclusion without equity. So it all goes together. Yes, yes. It's a continuous process. Yes, absolutely. All right, Regina. Well, we are coming down to the home stretch. And I always like to close out the podcast with inspiration of words of wisdom. So with that being said, what advice would you give to women, particularly women of color, who either want to pursue a career in legal or a career within the oil and gas industry? You know, that's actually the hardest question for me out of all, I think, because one is just my initial response is to acknowledge and recognize the fact that it's hard in a different way. It's a journey. 
in parallel, you have to meet people where they are, just like they have to meet you where they are. And sometimes what I've learned in my 30 years of working is that when people make mistakes or do things that come across, whether it's bias or whether it's just flat out inappropriate, we have to be able to have the courage to have the direct, genuine conversations on that. Many times I have learned that people make mistakes and it wasn't as intentional. But even if it was, if you can have that conversation and engage with them in a meaningful way, you can help change their perspective and ensure that they're also accountable for understanding how to best engage with you. So the first real narrative that I would just say on that is it's about really having the courage ourselves because to recognize that it's hard, but there's not this one thing that you can do. It's transparency, being authentic, but also holding others accountable for how they engage with you. It's not just about our piece of the accountability for diversity, inclusion, and equity. It's about the collective. And so I have to have just as much accountability for making sure that others feel included as I expect them to have to make me feel included. And so it's that dual responsibility that I think is really important to lean into as women of color. But it is hard. It's not easy and it's not a solution because every situation is going to be different. Every person grew up differently. So how do I understand and engage with them in a way that they will understand and engage with me the way I want to be engaged with? Perfectly said. Regina, thank you so much for sharing your brilliance and light with us. How can the listeners get in contact with you? And do you have any events coming up that you would like to promote? I don't have any events that I would like to promote in the meantime. I'm sorry. I do want to promote Diversity Atlas. I heard your introduction for them. So, hey, support Diversity Atlas. It sounds like they're doing some amazing work. And outside of that, you can get in touch with me through linkedin.com. That's the easiest way. What is it? Follow and like. (laughs) But that's the easiest way. I try to keep my LinkedIn profile updated and stay available that way. Yes. If you are not following uh, Regina, please follow her. She posts some really cool posts. I love the one with you. What was it? You were climbing a mountain? Oh, recently, yes. We went climbing in Utah. That was so fun. And I was afraid. I was scared to death. And it taught me something because the guide said, I want you to get to this peak and I want you to lay back on your equipment and let go. And so I had to lay my hands open, hold them open and lean back on my equipment. And it was rock climbing and I was scared to death, but it helped. He said, that is what trust looks like. You have to trust your equipment or this isn't going to happen. But yes, thank you for acknowledging that. But that was a super fun trip in Utah. It looks super fun. (laughs) Awesome. All right, everyone. Well, that's all we have for today. And in the meantime, remember, diversity is not a buzzword. It is a key driver of innovation and growth. So let's keep the conversation going by sharing our stories and building an equitable energy industry together. Until next time, stay curious, stay open-minded, and stay tuned for more DEI insights and conversations on the DEI and Energy podcast. And I will see you on the next episode. Come back next week for another episode of Oil and Gas DEI, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.